Hello and welcome to the Nursing Standard podcast. I'm Flavia Munn, editor of Nursing Standard, and I'm here as always with my colleague, senior nurse editor, Richard Hatchett. Good to be here as ever, Flavia. Good to have you as always. And this particular recording was, of course, a recorded pre-COVID-19 lockdown. And it's a great interview about enteral feeding with Sean McLaren, a registered dietitian at London Metropolitan University. So, Richard, this is, of course, full of top tips. But what can podcast listeners get out of it in particular? Firstly, I think it's an excellent podcast to give you an overview, an update on enteral feeding. But for many nurses, I think they encounter enteral feeding at certain aspects of the journey. For example, I'm an acute care nurse, so I tended to see the commencement of enteral feeding and short-term enteral feeding. And if it was longer than that, long-term feeding, it tended to move outside of my sphere of practice. So Sean looks at the many differing types of patients who have enteral feeding, the safety aspects, which of course is, is so critical, and also the effects of a liquid feed, both physically and psychologically. So there's something here for everybody, the phrase I tend to use, but also very useful for your CPD and reflecting and benchmarking your own practice uh, against what Sean's talking about. So anybody who's encountering uh, patients on enteral feed, there will be something for them. Fantastic. Well, let's take a listen. Well, I'm at London Metropolitan University, which is, of course, in London, and I'm with Sean McLaren, and Sean is a lecturer here and involved in research uh, in the School of Health Sciences, and is a registered dietitian with an NHS caseload of home enteral tube feeding patients. That's quite a mouthful, Sean. So he's perfect for this topic. Um, so welcome, Sean, to the Nursing Standard podcast, and we're going to have a look at some of the common issues uh, that are relevant to enteral feeding and nursing and hopefully give everyone an update. But I guess the, the thing to start with is, what is enteral feeding and how does that perhaps contrast to parenteral feeding? Okay, so enteral feeding is when you feed a patient directly into their guts. Um, and the implication here is that you're, you're bypassing the mouth. You're going straight to the stomach or to the... Uh, the small intestine. Parenteral feeding is bypassing the gut entirely and going straight into the blood. So I think that's that's the the fundamental difference is that yeah. enteral feeding, as opposed to oral feeding, you're bypassing the mouth. Um, and uh, some patients won't be able to swallow, for example, after a stroke, um, certain types of head and neck cancer. Um, there's a potential for recovery there, but in the short term, perhaps you know you can't feed directly. So you need to bypass the mouth, uh, minimize the risk of aspiration. And then with parenteral nutrition, there may be a problem further down in the guts, ileus or something like that, um, where it's or perhaps a liver liver problem, um, where it, it's not viable to feed into the gut. But you, you still need to feed the patient, and nutrition is still a human right. Um, and there's, there's plenty of good evidence that, that continuing to feed during illness, it, it reduces the length of stay in hospitals, uh, improves patient outcomes. So there, there are plenty of advantages to continue feeding and not starving a patient and hoping for the best. Exactly. Um, you deal with a lot of patients who have enteral feeding. Um, I mean, my background is ITU, as we were saying, you know, before we started recording. Yeah. So I saw a very narrow group of patients who were enterally fed. But uh, who, who does have enteral feeding these days? 
Okay, so it, it's similar the the intro feeding patients that we mentioned already. Um, the the patients who have head and neck cancer, for example, are very mm. common, um, and they're quite a hopeful group when it comes to intro feeding because it's they tend to be the more short term while they're getting treatment, for example, um, and and once they've they've recovered, they can recover their their eating. Um, with long term enteral feeds, it might be something like motor neuron disease, uh, which is, is fairly common among enteral feeding patients, um, where as the disease progresses, they become more dependent and on enteral feeding and, and less able to feed and eat themselves orally. Um, stroke patients, so particularly just after a stroke and, and while they're rehabilitating maybe with the help of, of nursing staff and with um, speech and language therapy. Um, and while they, they remain at a high risk for aspirating, they, they might be fed entry. And then patients who are unconscious, so in, in the ITU where they might be intubated or sedated, mm. um, head injury, although those are, are not the majority of, of mm. patients. I think mm. the, the yeah, that's, what, that's, that's what kind of what I was thinking. I've lived in a bubble in my career. Yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of but a very highly specialised bubble. A highly specialised bubble. A very um, important work still. It is, it is, it is. We <laughs> don't want to break that bubble. Um, the, the, it's um, quite interesting you talked about quite a lot of different patients. Does that mean that some will stay on enteral feeding, others it's more short term, yeah, and if yeah. that's the case, is your planning different when yeah. you start the enteral feeding, because you're, uh, got, you know, there's a different trajectory, really. Yeah, so I mean, the, the patient group is, is very diverse, um, and not so much in terms of the, the, the taking into account how long you're going to feed them for, um, with the types of feeds you're using, for example, or the... Um, you know, how, what the frequency or duration of feeds are, uh, but definitely the feeding route is influenced by how long you're planning to feed for. So if it's a short-term feed, you know, maybe over a few weeks, I think up to about six weeks, you'll do a nasogastric feed or a yeah. sort of nasogedral. Um, and those, those patients are, are sort of for short-term. And those are the ones that give the nurses the nightmares because they they have all sorts of risk of being displaced quite easily mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So that does does come with its disadvantages. Uh, whereas a long, longer-term feed will be a, a PEG, percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy tube. Um, long words. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of yeah. words. Stick to PEG. Yeah, Google it after this. Okay, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, so PEG, PEG tubes, they, they're meant for, for much longer term. And those patients can be kept on a PEG feed for years. Um, and yeah. does that happen? And it does happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we've got we've got tubes that last themselves for years. So a, a peg tube placed can can survive intact for up to seven years in some cases. Really, really long term tubes. Um, a lot of the ones we're using, particularly in community now, because these, you know you've got to plan where these patients are going. Mm. They're not going to live in hospital mm. for years. They're they're going to be discharged to community, where um, your home enteral dietitian, your district nurses, are probably going to be dealing with them and, and helping them along, um, sort of with their their management. Um, yeah. So with those, we do have sort of balloon gastrostomy tubes, which only stay in for about three months, and then they need to be replaced. Uh, so the, yeah, the the type of tube and the roots of feeding 
I think is, is more of the main concern when it comes to how long you're, you're planning to feed a patient entry for. Mm. Um, and again, that will be related to the, the disease, the underlying condition. So. With, um, in relation to those tubes, that, uh, probably a, I don't know if it's a silly question, but are they all put in, are they put in surgically? Are they put in by the bedside? Are they, do, yeah, it depends on the tube. So your, yeah. your nasogastric tubes and that you can put in yeah. at the bedside. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're a bit, they're, as you were saying before, the nurses don't, don't feel too comfortable with yeah. them sometimes yeah. because there's almost a lot of responsibility placed on the nurses. Just to where it ends uh, up. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you've got to, there's a lot of careful monitoring and testing pH and, mm-hmm. and sending them for scans and all sorts of things. So there's, there's a lot there. Um, whereas the, the, so I mean, we've got a lot of, of pig patients you know, and the numbers are, are increasing, not by a lot, but they are increasing every year. Um, maybe related to, you know, sort of uh, population growth and demographics. But mm-hmm. um, one of the, the reasons is that it's becoming cheaper and easier to insert these tubes. So it's becoming a more viable option for mm-hmm. a lot of people. Um, and there are certainly advantages to enteral feeding. I mean, is that increasing yeah. possibly because patients are surviving cancer or they're surviving cancer so, yeah. yeah they're surviving cancer um, living with yeah. living with yeah. and and people because in general we're living longer yeah so you know you're living longer and because you're you're more likely to sort of reach an age where strokes are a, a, a concern um you know more people are having those sort mm. of problems so yeah it, it as the the population ages so problems and health problems that mm. are related to aging populations come about mm. um yeah so there's lots of there is a bit of an increase in in the number of patients that we're seeing um yeah the um a question yeah. an old question is um, I, uh, there's no other way of putting it. Yeah. Stool consistency. People living on liquid diets. Yes. Is it a myth that they have diarrhea all the time, or can they form a stool? Is the it is a myth. Right. Um, if yeah, I would like to say this, uh, actually, okay. you know, if, if you start seeing what looks like feed coming straight out, right. it's, it's you know, from a nursing perspective, call a specialist immediately because um, that's either some sort of malabsorption. Or maybe the the tube has migrated and has ended up, you know, far beyond where the the feed is going to be um, absorbed. And you, what you're seeing is is feed coming straight out because there's a we've got a problem here. So if it looks like feed is coming out, that's that's dangerous. But um, I think you also have fistula. Possibly. Yeah, well, that's that's it. Yeah, so uh, you know, if, if it's going straight to the colon yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or it could even be that the the tube is has come out in a gastrostomy tube, for example, is now not in the stomach anymore, and it's it's going straight into the peritoneum, um, and the diarrhea is happening as a as a result of all of the electrolytes going all over the place. You know, so it, it yeah, the, the diarrhea, constipation, sort of abnormal bowel movements mm. aren't generally related to the feed itself. Um, so there's there's a bit of evidence around that. It's more likely to be um, other issues around that go with the feeding and the, the underlying conditions. So um, a lot of medications are, are usually the first thing to go and look at. And I see this in the nursing homes a lot, where you've got a patient on two or three different laxatives, 
and the 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 you know they're saying all oh, the patients got the runs. So what is what is the problem? And so maybe it's the medication. Do they need to be taking this? Mm. And do you need to be administering it if the the stools are loose already? Um, I won't comment on it because I'm not a nurse or a, or a pharmacist. But it, it but it but it gives some. Uh, I mean, what you're saying is you've got to think bigger. You've got to think holistically. You've yes. Got to, yeah. Uh, not not bring your your walls in to focus yeah, on on the on, on the, the feed. Bag feed. Yeah. 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 Um, and there are there are different types of feeds available. So you know, if it's if it's an absorption problem, you go for a a more pre-digested feed, something like an elemental feed or a semi-elemental. Right. Um, or if it's, it, it could be a hygiene problem, which is, is also, I mean, especially, you know, a lot of people are, are really reluctant to um, feed dementia patients entry because they, they don't remember what this, this tube is that is coming out of them, and they start pulling at it. Okay. Um, you know, so there are a lot, of, a lot of dangers there, but they might also just be playing with it all the time. Um, learning disability is, mm-hmm. is one of the ones that's, that's really common. And so, you know, um, tube site infection, and that can, can all be a problem. But you're, yeah, with, when it comes to hygiene, making sure that giving sets are changed regularly. So are you that saying the, that possibly diarrhea is... An infection in the feed, in the yeah, treatment. yeah, it, it yeah. could be something more like that, you know. Yeah. Where um, there there are a lot of options, and, and it's important to check things like: is the feed running? Has it been hanging for more than twenty four hours? Or is the the feed expiration dates? Is it still mm. in dates? You know, and those those are all things that are are possible to do on the ward or, or mm. at at a home or in, on, in, even at a home visits, mm. just to eliminate some of the the things before. A complicated letter asking for a change in prescription or yes. something like that. Um, yeah, kind of. If it, yeah, if it's simpler than, if there's a simple solution, start small. Start small and, <laughs> and work to more complicated. Exactly. Um, you've talked about changing um, lines and banks, etc. Mm. Are, are the best practice guidelines? Because um, I presume there is a standard. Uh, somebody's produced guidelines or best practice standards be, uh, yeah. as to where how often you change yeah um there are there are clinical guidelines and i think nice guideline yeah. 32 okay is nutrition support <laughs> right um and there they do talk about um enteral feeding and and how to to do um all of those sort of yeah the, the sort yeah. Of standard yeah. care of but i'm thinking if you're um yeah yeah, I mean, you go all over the place, but care of the elderly homes and mm. people's own homes, etc. Because if you sort of work and grow up in a hospital, you know, yeah. you, everything is kind of, a, or there's an awful lot of protocols, etc. Yes, that's yes. practice. But I'm thinking, you know, overarching, what 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 drives the advice that you give? You know, yeah, so, yeah. So. I think for, for me, anyway, um, it, there there are certain. I mean, there's there's, there's evidence based practice. Yeah. You know that that's always going to be really important, um, and there are guidelines um, on on these things. And a lot of a lot of the information is is available through the feeds companies as right, well, yeah. where they've you know kind of invested a bit in in the sort of training and that sort of thing. Mm. So that that's where some of it comes from. Um, but a lot of NHS trusts, anyway, will have local policy. 
where you were able to find on internet services and that sort of thing um, the the actual trust policy mm-hmm. and, and what they do because they or, do differ. Or, or boards if you're in Wales, Northern okay, Ireland, yes. or Scotland. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, I've only practiced here in, in London. Other protocols are available. Other yeah. protocols are available. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that. <laughs> no, all worldwide. Let's be honest. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I, uh, the, the material is out there. The, the material is available, um, and it, it it would be worth checking sort of locally and then uh, extending to nationally. Yeah, yeah, because um, yeah, they, they will differ from yeah. areas to area and hospital to hospital and even care home to care home. Yeah. There are standards of practice and there, there's kind of a bare minimum we expect, but you want to be a little bit above that. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. And then, yeah, just sort of, you know, human values as well. How comfortable and how well can I ensure that this person stays yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, yeah, not yeah say, usually, you're talking about you know the individual context, the individual, yeah. the individual patient. Yeah. Um, what's the interface then between your profession and nursing? Um, who, who does what in relation to ventral feeding? It, yeah, yeah. I mean that must differ, I suppose. It does. It does differ, and it, it, again, it will differ in, in which context you're in. Mm. Um, and there is there is some overlap in some of the ro- the roles. But it's sort of the the nurse nursing staff are um, you know they're the ones putting up the feed, looking mm-hmm. after the patient day to day. At sort of a home entral level, it's it's more if there is a problem, it's troubleshooting from the dietitian and um, sort of reviews that you do every every couple of months. Mm-hmm. You know, you sort of set something and, and change as as it goes, and with input from from nursing staff and that sort of thing. So they say, oh, they give the dietitian a call, say, Mr. X has developed this problem. He's, mm. he's um, got diarrhea now, or um, he's developed pressure sores and he needs to be turned every three hours. We can't do that mm. with a tube stuck to him. What can we do? Mm. You know, and then and then you're, you're discussing with um, the nursing staff if, if the patient is able to talk about it, that's you know, mm-hmm. the first prize. Um, and, and any family or anything that, that's involved in the care. Um, yeah, so, so that, that's sort of it. And you're, you're really giving instruction to the nurses mm-hmm. on what they would need to do. Um, you know, so the timing of feeds and setting up the feed rate and mm-hmm. sort of weekly and daily care. So... Um, in, in the case of peg tubes, for example, giving a little bit of a wash around the, the peg sites yeah. to prevent infection. Or um, one that's really important is, is advancing and rotating that tube right. once a week if it's a peg tube. Uh, and that just stops things like buried bumper syndrome and granuloma from developing around the, the tube sites. Um, so those those are kind of nursing actions that the mm. dietitian has a little bit of input into, especially if, I mean, if you're in a nursing home or in, in a district nurse and you're not, you haven't got a whole caseload of mm. intra feeding patients, you're not expected to know everything. Yeah, you yeah, do you're not every seeing, time. Yeah, 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 unless you're doing, you, you, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, um, just one thing about um, drugs down tubes. Yes. And tubes blocking and. Yes. Uh, because I'm sure there are some people listening yeah. who, uh, you know, block tubes and yeah. mortars, and, mortars and pestles <laughs> and things and things yeah. will put down tubes, you know. Yeah. Um, 
uh, are we being very bad? <laughs> no, I mean it's a really good question, and and this is um, this is something that is very common: is two blockages and what you yeah. do and that sort of thing. Uh, so the 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 advice for prevention, because prevention is better than cure, yes, right? Yes. Um, is always to flush the tube before and after every medication. Um, so that that does help prevent. Um, coagulation and that sort of thing, because some some medicines, especially the things like antacids, which have heavy metals in them, mm. are more likely to coagulate proteins. So that the, that then causes that occlusion, that blockage yeah. in in the tube. Um, and then some of the medicines that that are crushed are going to have have a problem. Yeah. So um, I suppose you're, you're you're saying elixirs are better or liquids are better. Yeah, than, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, the, there's a the whole issue for us about crushing tablets anyway, because tablets yeah. are. Yeah. I mean, the minute you start, really yeah, the, the minute you start messing around with them, yeah. The, yeah. the manufacturer uh, yeah, yeah. dusts their hands and says, well, I've got no control over this anymore. Sure. So, yeah, there's, there's those issues. And then, um, yeah, it does increase the risk of, of blocking tubes. Um, so the BAPEN guideline yeah. is, uh, so that's, um, if you can, well, actually, the, the guideline is to go for liquid and soluble um, Medicines mm. for tablet ones that have to be crushed, and there are some that you really need to avoid. Things like steroid hormones, for example, um, because they become aerosol, and then everyone in the the room is in danger. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah, so some some medications are very dangerous to try and crush. Um, but the guideline is to go for liquid. Some of the problem is that the liquid ones are more expensive, so you've sometimes got to do a bit of pushing. Yeah. Say, I need this patient on a liquid. Um, and again, it, it, it sort of it, every time a patient has to have a, a, a tube changed because it's blocked, it costs money as well, and it costs time and and They're distressing, I would think. And most importantly, it's distressing yeah. for the patients, yeah. you know. Um, so there the, are those issues that go along with it, and it's something that's so simple mm. and, and easily avoidable. But uh, yeah, from a day-to-day um, nursing perspective, making sure that you're flushing the tube. Mm. Some some water um, is is the, sort of the way to go for for preventing. But I, I presume that doesn't mean uh, the first step would be if they can swallow tablets, even though they've got a tube. Yeah, yeah. Again, it would be to avoid yeah. putting anything down the tube. Yeah, like, you know, you're, I'm, I'm yeah. automatically thinking that somebody who is tube fed isn't going to be able to swallow. That might be the case. Yeah, but it it, if they can swallow a tube, <laughs> tablets, safely. Then, yeah. yeah, yeah. If if you've got a nice uh, speech and language assessment or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, then by all means, yeah. you know, if, you've, if you've got the go-ahead for it. Yeah, but um, dysphagia is, is a very difficult uh, yes, I, uh, and very dangerous Yes, one would uh, want to condition. encourage people to put patients at risk. No, not, not for a few cents uh, yeah. of your pence. <laughs> this yes, case. Just, just, just stop, <laughs> stop you blocking the tube. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yes, um, I, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, just a final point, Sean, yes. which we talked about before we sort of started recording, is the whole uh, cultural thing, the whole isolation thing of not yeah. sitting down, having a meal with people, etc. You, yeah. you see that. That 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 must be a, a very difficult it is. situation for patients. Yeah, it's it's one of the most distressing. Um, both for the patient and I think the the, the sort of carers, um, you know, to because quality of life is is a huge part of all of this, um, and I think it's it's becoming more and more important in and is being recognised as being is you know important as yeah. um, 
the the type of care we're giving and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it, it is it is those issues because it's it's like you were saying where you're you're smelling food and you're seeing people eating yeah. and yeah. you can't have any of that and you can't participate in it. You really realize how how big a role food plays in your your day to day life and that you know you don't take it for granted as much. Um, sort of religious celebrations and those sort of things. A lot of them are built around and based around food and feasts. Um, and you, you don't get to participate in, in those sort of things. So, yeah, it is. it, it, it has a big psychological impact. Um, it can be motivating for, for some patients for rehabilitation, for example. You know, it can be something to look forward to being able to do again. Um, and it can be quite defeating when things aren't going so well. Um, and then it, it is important to be really supportive in those cases and... Um, continue with with trying to to encourage and, and manage expectations i suppose yeah but it does it is a a big a big problem um is there a lot written on it there's a little bit written on it there is some i mean there there is quite a bit actually on on the sort of the psychological impact of enteral feeding and one of one of the things that comes up is uh, from a, a health professional point of view is the more you can communicate with your patients and the clearer you can be with them um, and the more information that you're able to give them sort of up front, especially around the discharge time when they're leaving the hospital in the first few weeks, that's where you make your biggest biggest sort of impact on their, their psychology and their, their ability to cope. Um, and and there, is, there is sort of a significant impact on, on that. So um, really the, if the patients who feel the most supported are the ones that are going to be and it, it should sound logical, shouldn't it? I mean, it does, it does sort of almost sound um, obvious when you say it, but w- when you've got demonstrable results from that um, and you can see that something so small as that makes a big difference, it's worth doing, yeah. Just finally, is there any um, final points that you think nurses benefit knowing about so you, I think you've touched on so many top tips and oh yeah um, uh, I, I suppose that last one is is an important point isn't it? it's that relationship with the patient that they yeah. feel they can talk to shared decision making I suppose yeah. um, uh, and what decisions can patients make in this situation because one presumes they're limited because the yeah. the correct decision is parental feeding but um, can they choose? I'm, th- I'm thinking about sort of rest periods yeah, and fitting it in yeah. around their lives. And oh, there are there are lots of yeah, lots yeah. of places. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that is it does make the the area very interesting and and to work in because you're. It, I think it's the true of any sort of community health work, in this case anyway, um, where you're you're working around and, and seeing the patient as a whole person. It's a holistic. It's a holistic thing. So um, the choice, for example, between continuous feeding where you've got a pump and it's it's infusing feed at a, at a set rate for a set number of hours compared to bolus feeding where you're uh, either by gravity or syringe mm-hmm. um, infusing the, the tube, uh, the, the feed through the tube. Um, and that, that can be a personal choice for the patient. Um, and how long they want to feed for, or do they do they like night feeds over day feeds? They they might be able to sleep quite comfortably with the tube running, and that leaves them free all all day to be able to if you know if they're mobile or, or even immobile. But they um, 
I don't want to feel like they're tied to a tube all day, you know. So it, it, there are there there is quite a bit. I wouldn't say a massive amount, but there is quite a bit of choice available, where you're able to work around problems that the patients have, um, and it is important to 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 may, maybe make them recognise that, um, and then speak to the right people. So the dietitian will be able to help mm. make the right choice and and assist with that decision. Um, from a nurse's perspective, from the nurses. Because you'd originally asked about what sort of advice. I was looking for your top five tips. Top five? Oh my goodness, off the top. I thought of 10, but I thought I might let you off on a Friday (laughs) Friday afternoon. But no. um, But what you're really talking about is is working with the patient so they're not disempowered. Yeah. Because you're you're taking control of something quite integral to their lives, aren't you? It is. Yeah. Yeah, it's. And we, we do we we have a lot of control with food, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, and it is something we do feel like we have a lot of control over, um, and a lot of, of psychological problems manifest around I will not eat or I will eat yeah, too much. Yeah, you know, so yeah. um, you can kind of draw those parallels, and so you're taking away that that decision making in um, in in those patients. Yeah, so it is. It, it does. It, your, your your feeling of yeah, power and, and sort of control yeah. over over the situation. Um, it is very difficult, for people. Yeah, are we still doing top tips for? Me? No, that's <laughs> fine. I think that's more than I think you've probably got twenty in that that, okay. that whole piece. Yeah. Um, Sean, thank you very much. I know people will will greatly appreciate um, your time on this one. Thank you very much. Yeah, oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for for your time as well. Thank you to Sean and Richard to you too, of course. So any final thoughts from you, Richard, on this topic? Well, what can you say, Flavia? There's so much there. Um, there are three aspects I think are particularly of note. One is um, thinking about the safety aspect, of course, and remembering that although a tube may be safely uh, positioned and put in place, it can migrate. So thinking about the ongoing safety issue. There's, of course, also the psychological impact and the physiological, but the, I'm particularly thinking about the psychological impact and how much eating is involved in our, our everyday living and culture and being. And also, finally, the multidisciplinary working. There's Sean, who's a dietitian, working with us as nurses. So we're drawing on the skills of the multidisciplinary team to provide the best care possible for the patient. Absolutely. As always, all the resources connected to this topic can be found at rcni.com forward slash podcast where you can catch up on the series so far. So as ever, we always appreciate feedback. So please rate or review us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And thank you very much for listening.